Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here today at First Christian Church. To everybody in the East and in the West and in Lovington, I'm very glad you're with us. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Jude. It's all the way towards the end of the Bible. Look for the last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation. And then right before that is a one-pager, maybe two pages at the most, called the book of Jude. Uh, guests, we're very glad you're with us. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. I'm glad you're here to worship at First Christian Church. And of course, we're also glad that we are joined by our friends and brothers and sisters in Lovington today. I'm very glad you're with us as well. While you're looking for the book of Jude, something um, that I want to bring to your attention, that is that uh, a week ago yesterday, we had uh, our fall baby dedication event. It takes place on it. We we used to have baby dedications up on the stage, but we're in an interesting situation and problem. We have more babies than we can manage at times. So uh, we do them all now. We have a baby dedication where a lot of families come in together. And so I want you to take a look at a photo of the babies that were dedicated a week ago yesterday. That's really cool stuff, right? All those babies and all the parents. The parents are okay as well, but there you go. And um, I'd like to pray for those families. Can we do that together? Lord, I thank you for these men and women and the little babies. And uh, God, I, I thank you that they came to this place in their lives where they said they want that child to know Jesus Christ. They want that child to grow up and be fully blessed by you. I'm reminded, Lord, of the pattern of Scripture. The patriarchs would take their hands and literally put them on the heads of children and say, I bless you. And so, Lord, we bless those babies today. We bless their parents, and we ask God that those, those adults would have great wisdom from you to know in the days ahead how to lead, how to care, how to um, provide all the resources that those little ones need so they would come to know Jesus, so they would have abundant lives, so they would be 18 years from now, uh, 25 years from now, 45 years from now, 65 years, Lord, and on, that they would be the light of Jesus Christ in the places where you take those children. We're glad that we are involved in their lives now, and we give you praise for all of that. In the name of Christ, amen. So can you uh, congratulate all those parents and, and the children of two, of course. So uh, you are, if you've been part of the life of our church for any brief period of time, you know that I was born and raised in Australia, and sometimes my accent pops through now and then. Uh, we lived there till I was 11, till we moved to this side of the Pacific Ocean. In Ozland, we lived in Oz, and um, we lived in a little town. Uh, my, astra- my history and heritage for generations is Australian, and so um, we lived in a little town, a mountain town, three thousand feet up from the from three thousand feet elevation, and uh, sixty miles west of Sydney. It's a town called Katoomba. Uh, Katoomba is an Aboriginal word which means falling water, and the reason that we say falling water is because Katoomba is on a ring of cliffs. All it literally. The city or the town, only 10,000 people, comes right up to the cliffs. And uh, there are lots of places where water falls over the cliffs. The cliffs are anywhere from, for the most part, 800 feet straight down to even more, um, some places over 1,000 feet down. That's where I grew up. I was familiar with those cliffs as a little boy. As a matter of fact, uh, that shot you can see right there is about a mile and a half from the house where I was born. Well, not born, but where I grew up. And um, that gorge that you see there is a valley that's longer and wider than the Grand Canyon. 
It's larger, has more square miles than the whole nation of Switzerland, 4,000 square miles. So you can literally, people get lost down in there and they're never seen again. It's rainforest, 5,000 species of animals and plants, we're told, have not been identified yet. I don't know how they know, if they didn't identify them, how they know there's 5,000 of them, but there you go. <laughs> there's 5,000 species down there we haven't named yet. Well, if you counted them, why didn't you name it the same? Uh, but anyways. <laughs> As a little boy, truly as a little boy, on Sunday afternoons, we would take, in, in the car, we'd go driving around all the edge of those cliffs. Most of them have no guardrails, and we'd be allowed to get out of the car now and then, particularly at one cliff, and we would go to the edge, and Dad would hold our hands, and we would peer over the edge, and there would be, this is a place where they would junk old cars. People would literally take their beaters, and they would push them off the edge. Dad talks about how when he was a young man in his 20s, went down one time, there was some engine of a car he was trying to rebuild, some 1928 something or other, and he and my uncle went down and took the engine out of the car, and I don't know how they winched it back up that 800 feet back up the cliff, but they did that, and so you're saying, well, that's kind of cool stuff. Why are you telling us that? Well, you're going to have to wait for that. We're going to read Jude and see if I, you can't figure out why I'm telling you about those cliffs without guardrails, all right? Read with me Jude, verse 17, all right? Verse 17, uh, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. You could put it half-brother in the sense that uh, he grew up in Jesus' home, and his father would have been Joseph, Mary would have been his mother. Verse 17, he says, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times... In the last days, as the time of humanity is winding down, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. There will be people who don't abide by Christian faith, he says. These are the people who divide you, who, who follow mere natural instincts and don't have the spirit. But you, being not a scoffer, you being a believer, dear friends, you, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So Pastor Brian, uh, expertly last weekend, started us off to look at the book of Jude, and he, 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 he showed us how uh, Jude has this concern about, well, that you've got to call some things true, and you've got to live by some things that are true, he says, that that was what Brian was really pointing out, and you've got to call some things that are false, and you've got to be wary and a little bit alarmed at the things that are false, and today's passage is more or less just illustrating that by saying, in the last times, there'll be scoffers, there'll be people who do not abide by the truth of Scripture. There'll be people who don't believe it. In the last times, there'll be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. And now, it says there, in the last times, I don't know if we live in the last times, but we certainly live at a time when there are lots of people who scoff at Christian faith. That's where, I mean, so I, if, if the, that's maybe not the only marker of the last times, but it certainly is a marker of our time that people scoff at Christian faith. And, and Jude says, well, consequently, there are some things you should do. Look at it in verse 20 again. What does he say? He gives us four ways 
that you could be certain that you don't pay attention to the scoffers or you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Four responses to the scoffers. First of all, I'm going to build up my faith. I'm going to pray in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to continue to be a person of love. And for those who don't believe, I'm going to continue to engage them with mercy. Now, we don't have time to chat about all four today. We'll focus on the first of the list, and as time gives us, um, allows us next week, we'll build some more. We'll look at some more. But for today, I want us to examine when it says that, hey, there's people who scoff, and in response to the scoffers, you need to build up your faith. What does it mean to build up your faith? Well, let me see if I can explain that with a little bit of congregational history, a little story, if you will. Uh, we, we belong to a group of churches called the Christian Church. It's a strange name when you think about it. I mean, it's a little audacious to say, well, we're the Christians and the Methodists aren't Christians. Is that what we're saying? Are we saying the Roman Catholics aren't Christians? We're not saying that. Let me see if I can explain to you in a big generalized understanding of how the Christian church is known across America. We, uh, the Christian church is the first American-grown group, or we're not a denomination, the old language was brotherhood, but nonetheless. The group of churches that we belong to are um, the first group of churches that was founded in America. Because if you think about most of the churches, all of the churches until the Christian church were imports from Europe. The Methodists came over in the late 1700s. The Episcopalians, the Church of England, you know, at the time of the founding of the U.S. Uh, you have... Um, Presbyterians, the people who came from Scotland, you have Roman Catholics, you have all these other denominations, if you will, that came from Europe. But when you get to America, here's what happened in the, in the late 1700s into the 1800s. The church, the group was founded early 1800s, 1802, 1803, in that sort of area. Um, people were moving from the East Coast across to the West, right? The West was expanding, and you get to little towns like Decatur, 1834 is when our church was founded. We are the first church, as far as we know, that was founded in the city of Decatur. We're going to be 185 years next year. We should do something about that. But nonetheless, what would happen in these little towns of, say, 100 people, there'd be some people there who are followers of Jesus, but there's a Presbyterian family, and there are no other Presbyterian families to build a Presbyterian church. There might be a Methodist family. There might be an Anabaptist family from kind of Swiss, Middle Europe's place, places, and, and they'd be the only family there, and they'd say, well, we can't build an Anabaptist church, or we can't build a Methodist church, but there are some other Christians in the community, so maybe what we could do is we could just get all of us Christians together, and we'll leave aside some denominational, some theological differences and say, let's all just get together. And so that's, and what are we going to call ourselves? Well, since we're all Christians, we're just going to go to the Christian church. And one of the things that happened was, in an effort to say, we are not really, we don't really have some set theology. There are some things that we always do. And they said, well, the common denominator is that Jesus died for us, and they said, we're going we're to be certain that the communion table is used at all times. And so what happened was, in most of the Christian churches in the early days, and most of them to this day, you'll walk in the room, and you'll find a communion table. This is the communion table that we put in this room in 1996 when we moved into this building. You'll find the communion table very prominently displayed. Usually, what we say, downstage, down towards the, the congregation, center stage, right in the middle of the platform, there was always a communion table. 
when we moved into this building, this is where, more or less, this communion table was placed. But there was something interesting. We put wheels on it because we knew that at times we might need to move the piece of furniture. But something also happened at about the same time. See, in the early days of the U.S., really up until moving into World War II, there was this common understanding of this is what we believe. And so some aspects of um, our early days as a group of churches was that people came from all these variety of traditions and they said, we're going to have communion once a week. That's the only common denominator. As a matter of fact, that's why we still have communion every week more or less. I mean, there's a couple weekends a year when we'd say we're not going to have communion. Can I tell you why, as an aside, when on the weekends that we say we're not having communion, Easter, we're not going to have communion at Christmas this year. Um, when we, here's why. When we, have, when we know we're going to have hundreds of guests, we're concerned about what we're asking them to do. Scripture says that when you get together to remember Jesus' death, and that you should eat and drink, and that you should do it Follow as a follower of Jesus Christ. And scripture puts it this way. If you're not following Jesus and you eat and drink, the Bible says it this way. You eat and drink, this is the language. You eat and drink damnation to yourself. And so our concern is on the weekends when we have hundreds of guests here who don't know Christ and don't know that scripture and then they're placed in this awkward spot of these trays passing in front of them, are we encouraging them to eat and drink damnation to themselves? So there are a few weekends a year we go, okay, we're not going to have communion. But for the most part, we have communion every, every week together. And one of the things is that as we have communion together, and certainly the early days of the churches uh, in this area, there was this saying, well, okay, we don't know, we can't say we particularly believe this or we particularly believe that. And so there, there was there was a real push away from creating a statement of faith. You know, if you're a Lutheran, you got a statement of faith. Everybody believes this. And so consequently, because they were from all these different backgrounds, instead of a statement of faith, uh, the church or the group of churches more or less adopted a variety of slogans. Things like this. Where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. In essentials, unity. And the things that really matter, we're going to be unified. Jesus died for us, we're going to have communion. In opinions, we're going to have a lot of liberty. Now remember, this is an American church. Does that sound familiar? We're all going to come together, but we're all going to not disagree all the time. And you're going to have the liberty to disagree in all things love. No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. So most of our churches, consequently, do not have a statement of faith. Because statements of faith saying you have to believe this were seen as creedal and maybe not from the tradition you came from. But beginning some 30 years or so, in the mid-80s, the leaders of our church began to realize there was a problem in our culture. That prior to World War II, it was common thinking to say, okay, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. I'm not everybody, but across America, it was like, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and people know the biblical story, and they know what that means and everything, but really coming out of World War II, that commonality across the U.S. began to disappear, and so we discovered some, that some of the truths that have been commonplace in the previous 150 years were no longer evident, not only in the culture, but sometimes within our own churches, and the biblical story, the, the biblical knowledge had been lost not only in the culture, but in many of our congregations. So we created a statement of faith, saying this is what 
used to be common thinking, but it's no longer common thinking. And if you look in your program today, you'll find that that statement of faith is there. We'd suggest that you take a look at it to this week and um, can't say, okay, these are some things that are, were common in years gone by. They're not common anymore, and so this is where we land. We said, this is what we believe. And in the context of that, we began to realize that in order to proclaim what we see as truth, we had to say this, that not that the communion table was removed from our services, and not that it was no longer the centerpiece of what we did each week, but we had to start saying, there are some truths that we need to bring to our congregation on a regular basis, and we need to take the pulpit, the, un the unpacking of scripture each week, and make it front and center. When we moved into this building, the communion table was right here, there was a lectern over here, and I preached from over here. The pulpit was over here. And in the last 25 to 30 years, as we've seen what's going on in the culture around us, we've said, we have to find a way to help our congregation understand the truths of scripture, and thus, the pulpit, if you will, move to the center of the room. Here's why. If you look at what Jude is saying, he's saying, I want you to build up your faith because there are going to be people who scoff and don't believe the faith. And that certainly is our time. There were people who are not going to accept the story of Scripture as true. They might not even know the story of Scripture. And so he says, in those moments, in those times, make certain you build up your faith. And in the context of our era, when there's lots of scoffing, Jude says, build your faith. So, if we're going to do that, then what are some issues that we would say need addressing? What are some things, ways in which we would say we need to build our faith? I want to deal with a couple of them today, and then we'll carry on with some more next week, okay? So first of all, when it comes to building our faith and our understanding of how the furniture moved in response to where we are as a congregation... Be aware of this, that first Christian church, beyond the shadow of a doubt, believes that the Bible is truth. We believe that the Bible is our highest authority for our life together as a congregation, for the polity and policy decisions we need to make, and also it's the rule of life for us as individuals, and it's the rule, it's the guideline, it's the highest authority for everything we do regarding our personal spirituality and the church's spirituality. The Bible says that itself. The Bible states that all scripture is God-breathed. God brought it into being. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Why? That you can get those four things for, for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness to do what? So that the servant of God, you and me, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does that mean? It means that the Bible itself proclaims and claims to be produced by God. Not necessarily, not, not that this God printed this, but that God brought these words into existence. And frankly, friends, if you don't believe that, that's a core understanding of our congregation. If you don't believe that this is God's word, that's fair enough, you get to make that choice. But if you fail to choose that the Bible is Believe, and believe that it is God's word, then that presents a problem. Because if it's not truth in one part, where's the line between what's true and untrue? 
And where's the places where you say, okay, I'm going to lean into scripture for this part of my life, but not for this part. That doesn't make sense. It's, it's not logical to say, well, parts of the Bible are true. Well, then why does the Bible claim to be truth all in all itself? So as God breathed instructions for us, we have to say, we have to abide by any matter that is, that is addressed in scripture. There are some things, in other words, that are essential. I want to give you an essential thing right now, and then I'm going to give you a couple that are more like opinions based on that essentialness. And so, in essential unity, in opinions, liberality, in everything love. So, here's an essential. First Christian church places a very high value on the life of all humans. Why? Because the Bible declares it as such. Now, I'm going to tell you, friends, I'm about to step into some things here. You need to listen carefully, and I'm going to give you two places where you can go and chat this afternoon, okay? And as you chat about them, you may not all agree with me, but please, as you chat, be careful not to put words in my mouth at the same time, all right? So here's, here's what we believe when it terms, comes to human life, that when it, when it comes to human life, Scripture says that of all of the cosmos, of all of creation, only humans are made in God's image. We're, we're basing our understanding of the value of human life on the fact that we believe this, all right? Now, it's only, the, it's only humanity that mirrors God. We are not gods. We're not saying we're little gods with little Gs. We're not saying that at all. All that Scripture says is that we are the Imago Dei. We are, we are made in the image of God. No other creature, no other portion of creation is made that way. We are fundamentally, humans are fundamentally different than the rest of all, of all creation. And so... We say then humanity is very important, and that leads us to some very profound and important decisions. For example, we take a position as a congregation, an essential position, one we thoroughly believe in, that we, take it, we, we are opposed to any form of abortion. Now that has a variety of implications. It means then that as a church, as we see the image of God in all human life, that means we have responsibilities when it comes to abortion, not only for unborn babies, fair enough, but also for the fathers and mothers of both unborn and born children. If a person can't sustain that new baby's life, then it's the church's responsibility, it's our congregation's responsibility, it's your responsibility and my responsibility to care for both the child and the parent. Being pro-life is not just for the unborn. As a matter of fact, I would be convinced, absolutely certain, that there are people, many people, in the life of our church who have experienced the tragedy of abortion, somewhere along the line. It may have been last week, it might have been a year ago, it might have been 30 years ago. And in, in bringing this up today, I am not pointing fingers at anyone. But as a pastor, I'm saying, could we have a chat about that? Not to condemn you, but to figure out what brought you to that decision, and can we help you get past that tragedy? Can we help you, in the, in the, in the midst of the, a, a difficult conversation, say, this happened in my life, and I wish it hadn't, okay? So if you've experienced the trauma of abortion, please come and visit with me about that. Because if we say we believe this, and we believe that life is essential, then you've got to look at, I mean, Scripture is very clear that any abuse of any children, both born and unborn, the Bible is exactly against that. That's not a social position. That's not a social opinion. That's a theological understanding coming from Scripture. And there is a difference there, okay? Now, being pro-life then 
has some other implications as well. We're saying, how are we building up our faith? We want to look at the things that Scripture says. We'll examine more of them next week. But one of the things that comes out of that is that if we're going to be pro-life, that not only views how we view the beginning of someone's life and their care, taking on responsibility for children if we have to, or parents, or parents who didn't get to be parents, if you will. And we don't only take care of that, but we also have to look at what about the end of life? As a congregation, we would oppose, or I would say, on this one, I have to say I, I've we've kind of moved a little bit from essentials now to a little bit of the opinion business, that we're opposed to euthanasia. It's very hard to say that you could, you could support euthanasia from a biblical point of view. I can't see it, all right? But I'm aware that there's a difference, again, between a decision where you have to stop providing support to an elderly person who might die or somebody who's really sick versus promoting their life into suffering. I, I, where that line is, a little bit, uh, I don't know. But nonetheless, I must tell you then that this understanding of being pro-life and gotta, it's got to be all across, across all of your thinking, uh, this has had an impact upon me in regards to uh, dealing with capital punishment. Because to me, this is my point of view now, now we've moved from essentials absolutely to opinion. To be pro-life and also for capital punishment seems incongruent. You may disagree. We can chat about it at lunch today. <laughs> However, even as I say that, can I have a moment of transparency with you about uh, capital punishment? 1995, some of you are youngsters and weren't around when this happened. 1995, um, a building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City was blown up by a gentleman by the name of Timothy McVeigh. 168 people were killed, many of them children. 680 were injured. And um, within a few days, he was found, and he was tried and convicted and sentenced to capital punishment. And he was in Indiana, just a few miles east of here. And eventually that capital punishment, that sentence was carried out and he was put to death. And I had been growing and thinking through my understanding of capital punishment that I was probably opposed to that and wrong people being killed and so forth and so on. But then this strange response in my head and in my heart took place. In that when he died, I was almost gleeful. And as I reflected on that, how is it that you are glad that he died? He killed all those people. And I'm being very honest to you, with you here. I realized that my understanding of being pro-life only got so far as where I moved from justice being, being given out to vengeance. And I was more interested in vengeance than justice. There's your discussion point for this afternoon. Was Wayne glad for justice to be done? Or was he glad for somebody died? Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, take, take that on at lunch and get back to me and let me know what you think. Where, was I being just being vengeful? All right? So, uh, well, here we go again. Here's another thing to think about when it comes to being pro-life. Because our, our understanding of saying that humans are of great value should also apply to other settings. Like... Refugees and immigration. Wayne, you're not going to go there, are you? You've gone from preaching to meddling. Well, hang with me here, okay? Because if you want to talk refugees and immigration, there's a very contemporary problem, right? 
we've got a problem with this in our nation and what's the church gonna do about it? Particularly if we say that we place a high importance and value on human life. If we say that's the case, then certainly we have to, as Christians, approach the interaction between people of the first world and people of the third world in a significantly different way than right or left politics, Republican or Democrat. So may I remind you that the Bible is neither Republican nor Democrat. The Bible's viewpoint does not solely fit into one party, political party's platform. And that's the case on many matters. And whenever you start reading through Scripture through that lens of one particular political party, you're going to find yourself in very deep trouble. The Bible cannot be used to support only a right or left political cause. This is truth. I'm unwilling to say that the Democrats are tr fully truthful, and I'm unwilling to say the Republicans are fully truthful. So, what do we do about immigration and refugees if we say that we hold uh, humans in high value? Well, see if you can think of it this way. On the one hand, the Old Testament has many examples of where nations and groups were expected to draw and hold specific tribal boundary lines. The people of Israel moving into the promised land. You are to live here, you are to live here, you're supposed to draw the lines, there's supposed to be markers, and you gotta have people live in all these different places. Those lines of demarcation were very important. They were drawn and they were expected to be honored. On the one hand, boundaries are extremely important. Live by them. On the other hand though, the scripture says that the Israelites the Israelites were then also supposed to welcome immigrants across those lines. People from outside their nation, from outside their various tribes, were supposed to be welcomed. So you've got on the one hand, draw some lines. On the other hand, welcome people across the lines. Now in the Jewish culture then, the Israelites were then called to these boundaries. They're called to welcome people on the, on the bound, over the boundaries, first, second hand. And then scripture has a third hand that I don't have. Here's the third hand. As those people came across the line, those newcomers were to convert to Judaism as they came across the tribal boundaries. And any time the nation did not demand assimilation is when the country got into trouble. When there would be intermarrying without the newcomers coming in and converting to Judaism, you have this horrible, these horrible stories of where children are being sacrificed, young Babies are being sacrificed. Why was that taking place? It was an abomination to God because they were bringing in practices from outside the nation and not causing those people to assimilate. Anytime that the nation would do that, it would lose its spiritual base. And if you can look at time after time after time when Israel's in trouble, it's because they said, come on in, but they didn't create rules at the same time. So I don't know how that works, particularly in a pluralistic nation where we say, if you come on in, you have to assimilate. Assimilate to what? Who's going to make? <laughs> there you go. So here's the problem. The, or here's, the, here's my understanding. The Bible gives us a framework to wrestle through very contemporary issues. And when it comes to this issue, you need to hear the Bible is not just open borders and it is not closed borders either. either. It's not a binary decision, one or the other, as some in our nation would suggest. Again, remember our heritage on this, where the scriptures speak, we speak, where the scripture is silent, we are silent in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, and everything love. So there's something else for you to discuss at lunch today, 
What about Wayne's understanding of immigration? Take it on, I'd love to hear from you, but not on Facebook if you don't mind, okay? <laughs> For now though, uh, let me say there are more issues of faith, of how we build up our faith that I want to take on next, next week. And I look forward to seeing you then. But for now, uh, can I take you back to the cliffs of Katoomba? I told you I'd get back to that. And can I explain to you why we started our discussion there? Because what's going on there? Well, as I said, for miles upon miles around the, the town of Katoomba, there are mountains where you can go right up to the edge of the cliff and peer over. Nobody's holding you back. I mean, you could, if you're not careful, you fall over. And uh, you can see it's just straight down, anywhere from 800 to 1,000 feet. And one rock formation is called Anvil Rock. It's called Anvil Rock because in 1948, because the, the rock, you're going to see it here on the video, that's it right there. As, as, the, as the flight comes around, you'll see it kind of looks like an anvil right there. In 1948, there was a steel firm in the city or in the town who um, they forged a big anvil, 672 pounds, and they drug it out through the bush and planted it at the edge of the cliff there. Why, nobody knows, but they did it. And it was there. It was, that became known as Anvil Rock, both the shape of the rock and because the anvil was there. But then sometime in the 1970s, the anvil disappeared. Where do you think it went? Over the edge. Nobody was interested to know where it went. There's a big project to get it if you found it. Until 2005... Somebody standing up on the edge of the cliff there made a bad step and went over the edge and suddenly the authorities had to go and collect that body. As they got down below, looking around for the body, guess what they found? The anvil. 672 pounds of hardened steel had not been damaged at all. A few trees had broken its fall and there it was laying there on the ground. And so the community decided it's time to get it back up off the, off the forest floor and they drug it back up and they cemented it back at the top and it can never be moved anymore. It's now immovable and solid. Here's my point. Why am I telling you all this? Well, there are scoffers around these days that it's fashionable in some circles to bash Christian faith. And at times our faith, it feels like it's been thrown aside, thrown over the edge of a cliff and we wonder, will we ever see it again? But may I remind you, friends, the goal of our faith is not to be popular. We never, we never was a goal within Scripture to say, well, Christian faith is going to be popular. That's not the goal. Our goal is that the light of Jesus Christ would be seen in us through our faith. And I'm convinced, friends, this is my conviction, that just as that anvil was thrown over the edge and brought back, so I'm convinced that Scripture, even though th people may throw it over the edge and say your faith is, and scoff at the faith, I'm convinced that Scripture sustains and supports our faith. The scoffers, they may throw it, they may throw it at us over the edge, and they, they may control the culture, and they may throw Christianity flippantly off lofty heights. But the weight of scripture, the solid rock of its stories and its meta story and how it impacts our lives and how it impacts our faith gives us a foundation that is immovable in the face of what Jude calls the scoffers. And so today, land here, friends, land at this point, that this week in the place where you live, this where, in the place where you work, in the place where you go to school, in the place where you even maybe in your own home, in the face of scoffers, be, be assured of this. 
that you can, do, you can say, I will do this. I will build up my faith. I will pray in the Holy Spirit. I will love. I will extend grace and mercy in ways that are remarkable and God-given because I'm absolutely convinced of this. As Jude says, that to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To that God, to that God, our only God, our God who's the only Savior, to that God be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Can I pray with this, please? Father, we thank you that you are the one who's given us the scriptures. You are the one who has worked in our lives in powerful ways. And Lord, you enable us to know you, and we, you enable us to know your faith, your, the things that are important that you've declared through the word of God, through this, script, this book we call the scriptures. Build our faith this week, we pray. In Christ's name, amen, amen. We're going to conclude this morning by standing together and singing the words from this doxology, singing them out as the praise to our God. To our great God who lives us i